Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, uh, the day we remember Jesus. Today is the day we would remember Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey where the crowds were laying palm trees, palm branches down on the road and giving Jesus a royal treatment, singing Hosanna to the son of David. And then only a couple days later, they arrest him and they crucify him on Friday and then Easter. So as we prepare to take in more deeply the power of this remembrance of this historic season and the fact that he's still alive, still doing the same stuff today, we encourage you to come this Good Friday uh, to our Friday service, Good Friday service at 7 p.m. here. You can RSVP for that on the app or on the main webpage. You can RSVP there for that. In less than one hour, we're going to take you through some of the, so the seven key moments in the last days of Jesus and it's going to be a really experiential time. So if you're joining us online for Good Friday, we're going to have a few things that we'll either email out or we'll have something going on right before the service with kind of a list of things that you'll have around your home that you could gather so that you can actually do the experiential stuff with us during that service as well. We're excited to do Easter services. Again, please RSVP. If you've downloaded the Church Center app, you can do it there. You can also do it on our website at questvineyard.org. Uh, we're going to work to try to make sure that we have a, an appropriate number of people in every service so that we can keep a, a reasonable social distance. And so I, th I think we're going to be able to do that just fine. But please RSVP uh, for coming for either the 915 or 11 service this next Sunday, and we're looking forward to having you. Uh, if you are a person who has never taken that all-in step to follow Jesus and, and publicly declare your faith and you're ready to either do that or consider that decision, then I want to invite you to the baptism class on April 11th that's going to run during the 915 service in the hospitality room right here by the main entrance. In that class, you'll find out a little bit more about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to make that decision to be baptized, we're going to be doing baptisms on April 25th here in the main service, but I want to invite you to that class. You can register for that class as well on the Church Center app. Uh, and so that's, we've just got a lot of great stuff going on. We're going to talk about more stuff coming up in the next few weeks. I'm super thrilled because we got a few, uh, we're going to have two different amazing mission opportunities that we're going to be talking about with you in April that I just, I couldn't be happier and more excited about. I think they're just huge opportunities for us as a church and for God's kingdom to go forward. There's so much good stuff happening. So Wendy and I were out walking this last week and a pregnant mom walked by with this sweatshirt. So sometimes I just open my mouth and my father comes out. Isn't that true? It just made me laugh. It gets at one of the, what we're talking about last week and how our families shape us. And we see this truth in other sayings like the apple doesn't fall from far from the tree. Or many of us may agree with this added response to that. My mom says the apple doesn't fall from the tree, but I am hopeful that their tree was on a hill and I'm rolling farther away. Anybody ever feel that way too? This is our last week of the deep series like this because it's really a lot of inward work that we've been focusing on, a lot of spiritual habits. And I've got to be honest, when we do series like this, sometimes I get pushback from people saying it's not, you know, it's just, it's just too much. But honestly, 
The stuff we've been doing in this deeply formed series is the raw stuff of what takes it from religion to relationship. It's the raw stuff of what makes our faith really real and vibrant. It's the difference between being a consumer Christian and one with a really, really vibrant faith. So thank you for being so great going through this whole series. And and I know so many of you have, uh, have worked really in trying to integrate this stuff into your life. And I'm hearing really good stories from you on what God's doing. We're concluding this series uh, these last two weeks. This is the last week this week on this essential, essential spiritual formation process where we have to recognize our families and how they've shaped us in our relationships with others and our relationship with God. And again, we don't look at our families to find fault or to put blame. Our goal is to simply get a realistic picture of the healthy and the unhealthy patterns that we grew up with, that we learned, that affect our relationship with God and others, those patterns that honestly affect how well we are able to love others and how well we are able to even receive love from others. I think most of us would agree that we've experienced situations where whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 80 years old, you get triggered by a certain event and all of a sudden you feel like you're eight years old again. Not only do these triggers have us fall into patterns that are not good for us, they actually can oftentimes lead to generational sin being passed on from one generation to the next and continuing in our family line. So today we're building on last week's message where we looked at the generations of Abraham and landed on Joseph. And what we explored was how generational themes, sin themes, were passed down in this family line. We see it in the Bible, negative treatment of women, unhealthy marriages, lies, manipulation, favoritism leading to sibling rivalry. Joseph was his father's favorite, and his brothers hated him for it. They sold him into slavery, took his robe, killed an animal, dipped it in blood, and, and convinced his dad that he was dead from a wild animal. Joseph finds himself a slave in a foreign land and ends up in prison for years. I mean, he had many horrific things happen to him. The betrayal of his brothers, losing his family, his culture, his language, sold into slavery. He lived alone for years as an alien in a foreign land, dealing with so much pain and loss, only to be falsely accused and thrown into prison. I mean, a negative family legacy of similar sin, sin patterns had continued in his life for at least three generations that we know of that are recorded in the Bible, and they continued until Joseph. If anybody should have been bitter, angry, resentful, and wanted to quit on God, it was Joseph. But he doesn't. He doesn't go that way. Despite having experienced so much trauma, Joseph stops many of the generational sin patterns he had grown up with. He somehow walks in a surrendered way to God through all of the hardship and difficulty and he emerges a changed man. And he saves his family, changing its legacy. He forgives his family and he ends up becoming a blessing to nations. How does Joseph break these patterns? How does he not fall into the lying and the manipulating the situations to get an upper hand that his family tree had been doing for so long? How does Joseph get to the place where he says to his brothers years later, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving 
of many lives. So let's delve a little more into Joseph's story to see how he allowed God to work in his life to transform him spiritually. And after being falsely accused in prison for years, somehow Joseph makes his way to Pharaoh, interprets a dream for him, which results in Pharaoh making Joseph the second highest in command in all of Egypt. Joseph oversaw the land and he stewarded it so well that when the seven-year famine came that was part of this dream, they were well prepared. All throughout this time, Joseph is powerfully allowing God to work in him. All those years of being a slave and in prison, he's allowing God to work in him. And we begin to see the fruit of, well, just a quick example. First, he married and he only had one wife. And he chose to bless his sons when he named them. Joseph, it says, it says, before years of the famine came, before the years of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, and he said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So in Hebrew culture, it's really significant when a father is assigned to name the sons or name a child with a particular meaning. Joseph didn't choose to have one son pegged against another in his naming. Joseph actually chose to honor both sons while choosing to declare through their names how much God had done in his life and how much he trusted God in his life. So time goes by and the famine comes and Joseph and Pharaoh, uh, that Joseph had told Pharaoh would happen and, and this leads to Joseph's brothers coming on the scene. Their father Jacob sent the sons to Egypt to buy grain and they find themselves in Egypt unknowingly bowing down before their brother Joseph. Genesis 42 records it this way. It says, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. So just think of this moment. Joseph could have killed them right then and there. He has all the power, all the right, all the authority to do it. He could have also chosen to be merciful and just imprison them, or he could have sold them into slavery. In other words, Joseph could have continued to wreak the havoc, extending the sibling rivalry, continuum through his family that had been going on and on and on for generations. And he chose to do something very different. Joseph messes with them a little bit, testing their hearts, but eventually he gives them the grain and other things to bless them. He chooses to bless instead of curse. He chooses to love instead of hate. He chooses to give generously instead of withhold. So as the famine continued, the brothers came back for more grain. And this time Joseph finds himself overwhelmed with emotion. The text says it this way in Genesis 45. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one in the room with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard them, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. For good reason, right? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. If you're this brother, are you going to come close? That's kind of terrifying, isn't it? When they had done so, he said, 
I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. Over the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So again, just imagine this moment. Imagine being Joseph. He's had all this time to wonder if his brothers will come back again, preparing for how he'll respond. And then what do you think his brothers are thinking and feeling in this moment? They're probably thinking, I better get out of here as fast as I can. Joseph is going to have our heads. He's going to kill us. Yet we see Joseph, the man who had every right to be bitter, resentful, and every right to retaliate, respond with, but God has used this whole mess to bless us, to preserve a remnant. In other words, this is bigger than us. It's even bigger than the sins you committed against me. He responds with forgiveness, generosity, love, with God's good vision for life, not our vision born in bitterness and our experiences. See, we see Joseph's heart even more clearly after Jacob died and the brothers start to freak out again, thinking that Joseph will now act differently now that the buffer. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. So how did Joseph emerge so healthy from all this dysfunction? Well, I want to start by highlighting just two things. We're going to talk about more, but just two things. Joseph understands his family. He knows their strengths and weakness. And he intentionally makes choices to live life differently. It's not about whose fault it is that these negative patterns have been a part of their lives. We see Joseph take responsibility to make personal change. And second, Joseph allows his past to change him for the better. I mean, Joseph could have had multiple wives like everybody else in his family did, but he chose one. He chose to bless both of his sons instead of just one, instead of showing favoritism and picking one over the other. So you remember how all of his family had a pattern of lying and manipulating and thing, when things got difficult? Joseph, when things get difficult, intentionally chooses integrity and to be a straight shooter and honest. He released bitterness and he forgave those who hurt him. And he's able to find God in the pain of his past. He was able to rebuild broken relationships. He was able to bring blessing and change for generations to his family. I, I love what Philip Brooks, a 19th century American preacher, said. He said, you must learn that you must let God teach you that the only way to get rid of your past is to make a future out of it because God will waste nothing. God didn't bring the sin of the past, the pain of the past. That's all on us, all on them, all on his brothers. But he's not going to waste anything. 
See, when we join God, when we abide, when we stick out with Him, we find that God takes all of the junk of our past, our family, and brings resurrection power to it and can make impossible things from it. Your past, no matter how bad, can be a blessing to you and your family. Because Joseph chose to live differently than his past, it affected not only his future, his kids' future, but the entire world's future. We see in the Bible that because of Joseph's choices, the next generation continued to grow, eventually becoming the people of Israel from whom the Messiah, Jesus, came. The choices Joseph made affected even you and I sitting here today. Allowing God to make a future of your past reminds me of a guy, Graham Cook, that Wendy and I have loved listening to for the past 30, 40 years. Wendy and I had listened to him actually for decades before we ever heard him talk about his family story. Graham actually shows us, and it's just a beautiful example of how our families can shape us, but also how God can do the impossible and free us. God, Graham actually comes, maybe you don't know this, comes from a crime family. He actually did the genealogy, traced a pattern of crime in his family all the way back to the 11th century. They were all robbers, thieves. When Graham was four years old, because he was only, the only one small enough to sneak into a mansion in order to open the front door so the family could rob it, his grandfather had Graham sneak in. And when they finished the heist, Graham went to his grandfather and said, so what's my share? And he said, you get nothing because you didn't negotiate a deal up front. Along with being involved in crime, Graham experienced abuse throughout his childhood. His father targeted Graham, not allowing him to speak for months at a time, would banish him periodically from the family. He had a life full of theft, lies, abuse, and, reflect, and, and rejection. And then when Graham was in his late teens, he was actually on the run from the police, alone in a field. He had an encounter with God. One of my favorite things that he says about that encounter, about his experience with God from then on, he says, For me, Father, referring to God, you are the kindest person I have ever known. And he's been in ministry for some time. He had been in ministry for some time before Graham actually went and ministered in his hometown for the first time. And God worked really powerfully in a meeting. And afterward, Graham's family gathered around him. And his uncle said, Who are you? You are the best thief of us all. He couldn't believe the change. God changed Graham's past into a future that has not only changed the legacy of his, of his family, but the legacy of many other people's lives and families. Because God's ability to make the impossible happen is a reality if we let him. See, when we choose to make a future out of our past, we too can have an impact on generations after us. So we've seen how the relational patterns uh, get passed down, how Joseph flipped those patterns. But let's, let's spend a little bit of time drilling down even more specifically on what those scripts that rule our lives are, how they come about, and how we can flip them in our own lives. To help explain the concept of scripts, Peter Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, describes how we all have family commandments. We have God given us, God gives us the Ten Commandments, and our families also give us commandments. Some of the commandments are actually stated, but others are just the way things have been done. We kind of absorb them just because that's we've never known anything else. 
They can be rules that are considered normal in your family, often unconsciously assumed to be just the way life is in reality and the way you should do things. They can be values about what's good and what's not. We absorb them and we learn them from a very young age. Schizero actually gives an example of what some commandments might look like around the messages of your family, what, what they give messages around gender roles, conflict, money, sex, expression of feelings, a lot of other things. So he's kind of got his Ten Commandments of you know, family rules that we often hear. If you want to explore them more, uh, there's a handout uh, that you can get either online when we post this. It'll be able to, it'll be able to download it online. But we, I also printed a few copies that are on the table by the front door. You can free to take them if you want. In this handout, there's also a, a flip side of this. There's ten biblical family commandments that could actually help us begin to think about how do we flip the script in our own lives to what God wants. So maybe one of your family's commandments was avoid conflict at all costs. Anybody have that one? And maybe that's what your family did. How did you learn to negotiate differences in your family? How were you taught to listen, especially in times of conflict? How were you taught to assert yourself directly, honestly, and respectfully in conflict? Maybe in your family, anger was dangerous and bad. Or, or maybe everyone was angry all the time. And it was just normal to be overly angry. Or, or, or maybe in your family, no one was allowed to be angry. In God's family... We can actually, in the Bible, we actually can learn to express anger in appropriate, constructive, healthy ways. Since we've been adopted into the family, Jesus can teach us how to walk through conflict well. There's no reason to walk through life fearing conflict, saying, I'm bad at conflict. God wants to flip that script for us. What did your family, on the other hand, communicate about success? How do you know in your life that you're not a loser? Is it by making lots of money? By having a master's or a doctorate? So what do you find yourself doing to live out whatever that script about success is? Are you working 90 hours a week? You may not even know what is controlling you or, or why you're so driven. Success in God's family is becoming simply the person God has called you to be. So... What did your family say about grief and loss? Maybe another area you got a script in. Maybe your family's, for, for your family, sadness was a sign of weakness. You were never allowed to be sad or depressed. In God's family, we don't get lost in, or buried in the grief, but we bring our emotions to God and let him help us move through it and past them. Maybe you were not taught how to affirm and express appreciation to others so you don't say thank you to people very easily. You can be kind of negative and pessimistic and critical, just like your family. Maybe, maybe your life's mission is to be the BS meter. But that just makes you constantly critical and pessimistic, and it's not healthy. Maybe another commandment is you owe your, you owe your family for all they've done to you. That's a commandment. Now, it's true, we want to honor our parents and have really great family relationships, but we shouldn't be in bondage to them, owing them. Maybe you're, in your family, you, don't, you were taught to not trust other people. Maybe that was the commandment. Believing others would always let you down. Nobody's going to hurt me again, so I'm going to put up walls. If there was some, ever someone who had the right to say that, it was Joseph. 
Yet he broke that pattern. See, every family has their own set of commandments. We get to see what they, were, what they are, and, and the healthy thing is when we see what they are, we begin to compare them to how God wants us to live in his family. These unbiblical commandments can become negative scripts. They can become internalized messages that have been consciously handed down to us or subconsciously interpreted by us by what we've experienced. They can come from a, a big event or from a steady, of, a steady accumulation of little moments and experiences. And again, some examples of negative scripts might be, don't be weak. Or your worth and value are based on your performance. Or don't make mistakes. Or don't trust people. Or conflict is dangerous. Or keep the peace at all costs. Or, or don't be angry. Or be productive. Don't be sad. A negative script could develop out of almost any kind of experience. See if you recognize yourself in any of these examples. Dan is a highly accomplished doctor. He serves on the elder board at his church. He struggles with perfectionism and workaholism that consistently hurt his relationships, both at home, at work, and in church. His history is that one day when he was 10, he came home with an A on his report card, and he was punished by his father that he didn't get an A+. His dad sat him down in the room and drilled him on the vocabulary words since that's where he lost his two points. Dan's negative script is, get it right all the time. Don't ever make a mistake. Allison's parents divorced when they were seven. She remembers the day her parents sat across the table from her to tell her the news. And her dad said, I love you. I'll be there for you. And he promised that. But the problem came six months later when he got remarried and started a new family. And they hardly saw him for the next 20 years. So her cautious and careful approach to life is both an expression of prudence, but it's also a negative script. Don't trust people. In Susan's family, there was a lot of yelling and screaming, and her father at one time had an affair, and Susan, the oldest sibling, served as the intermediary to calm her mom down. She was the peacemaker of the family. And now today, Susan is a pastor, and she avoids conflict and angry people withdrawing from any unpleasantness until it passes. Her script is, conflict is dangerous and bad. Don't ever be a part of it. Nathan was raised in a Christian home where his dad repeatedly said to him, God has a special destiny and a plan for you, but if you step out of his will, he's going to judge you really harshly. So Nathan devoted himself to being responsible and productive, his script is, God has something for me to do and be, and I better not screw it up. Do you recognize any negative scripts of your own? See, I wonder what Joseph's script may have been. could have been several. It could have been, I'm not wanted. Lending him to walk around feeling insecure and fearful of rejection all the time, trying to cater to what others thought they wanted him to be all the time, to do and feel what he thought others wanted him to do and feel. And, or maybe his script reflected more of a sense of entitlement. I deserve to be treated well all the time because, after all, I'm the favorite. Leading him to expect others to treat him well, and when they didn't, he'd lie and manipulate to get that feeling in place. Without taking the time to locate scripts in our lives, we'll continue to repeat patterns and live untruths. The scripts need to be brought to Jesus. 
to learn to live in our new family with God as our Father. The scripts of our lives are comprised of three things, events, emotions, and interpretations. Events can be anything from small events like hearing a comment to something significant that was done in front of you, maybe even years ago. It, it could be a one-time traumatic event like a parent dies or a repeated pattern of behavior like your parents always being late to pick you up. Then there are emotions that surround that event. Not being able to be being picked up, for example, maybe your emotions were embarrassment or guilt that the teacher had to wait for you rather than being able to understand the gravity of the event. All emotions help give information about that event and what to pay attention to. But the events and the emotions do not make up the narrative script in our lives. It's the interpretation of our event is where the script is actually formed. How have you interpreted the event impacts and shapes how you live your life? So if your parents repeatedly left you or never came to pick you up on time, you could actually end up with a script that might tell you, I'm not important. I'm not valued. I'm not wanted. The script then goes on to affect your behavior. Let's take another example, divorce. Most every child whose parents get divorced thinks at some level they are the problem that caused their parents to not love each other anymore. If I had only been an easier to deal with, maybe my parents would have stayed together. Now, with our adult brains, we understand we're not responsible for our parents' breakup. But the interpretation of that event ends up creating a script so powerful, so strong, that many of us still live crippled by in our relationships today because of it. Because the interpretation of, event, of an event is way more powerful than most of us realize. It's critical that we become aware of how we interpret those events and the emotions surrounding them. Because that narrative you are believing affects how you are living. See, part of the spiritual transformation that God wants to take us through requires us to be more aware of these untrue scripts that have influenced us, affecting how we do relationships with spouses and bosses and friends and especially even with God. Remember I shared last week, I have a tendency to disengage and disconnect that feels, that kind of feels normal to disconnect a lot of times, along with a strong drive to succeed, which means I need to produce in order to be worthy, which can lead me to finding myself having an employee relationship with God rather than feeling like I'm a beloved son, worth more to God than what I can produce for him. See, these scripts of our lives, they own you until you identify them and understand their power over you. The Apostle Paul experienced strong negative scripts. He was known as the persecutor of the church, hostile towards the teachings of Jesus, killing Christians with a passion. And I know there were scripts about what was meant to be good enough in his life that was driving him to such zealousness until he had an encounter with Jesus. And then it all of a sudden began to flip. And you'll see Paul continually say in his writings, I was this and now I am this. So what's the secret to flipping that script. Well, first, Paul chose to live what he knew God said about him. 
Not what the negative unbiblical scripts of the past say about him or life. When we choose to follow Jesus as Lord, we become a new creation. I'm sure Paul probably thought, I have been a violent murderer and a bigot and all sorts of other things. And I also know what it's like to be radically transformed. See, in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul tells us how to live this truth out. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I think every one of us here, if we're honest, would look at the negative unbiblical scripts that we've had in our lives from the past as strongholds. It's the reason why at 40 we feel like an 8-year-old when they get triggered, right? Paul goes on and he says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here it is. He says we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So he's saying we have the power to demolish strongholds, anything that is not God's truth. Strongholds refer to a fortress with, with really difficult access. What Paul is saying is that we have been given authority, God's divine power to demolish the things in our lives, any mindset, any attitude, any script that we think is immovable, any belief system that feels impossible, impenetrable. We can demolish every argument that sets itself up against God's truth. See, Paul understood something that I think so many of us don't fully always wrestle with. He understood that in order to live into the truth of who you really are, not the scripts, the lies we've picked up, it starts in your mind. We take captive the thoughts that lead us to unhealthy places and make them obedient to Christ and what He says about us in those areas. To demolish untrue scripts of our lives and replace them with God's truth. To flip these scripts begins with identifying your negative ungodly scripts. You can't do it without that part, this step. So look at your genogram from the last week. That see the relational patterns. Answer some of the questions provided in the handout last week. And, 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 and in the handout this week, look at your family's unbiblical commandments that you've lived by. And ask yourself, do any of these that you find in the handout maybe seem to be true to you? Or are there other ones that maybe that sparks an idea about? You can also discover them by, by maybe just taking a memory of an event. Some of the easy ones to begin to discover these are, are just simple ones like your family getting together at Christmas or holidays or when a divorce happened, a big event happened in your life. How do you see the unhealthy scripts and relational dynamics being lived out when you get together for Christmas? What's uncomfortable at that moment? What are the messages that, don't make, that you don't like going on in the relations then? And an absolutely critical step for us is pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in identifying which event is something for you to work on and look at right now. We can't deal with everything all at once. It's just impossible. And God's, God in His mercy doesn't require us to change everything all at once. You want to look at the experiences that God is saying, let's tackle this one together right now. See, God was there when that event happened or those events happened. 
And he can take you back to the right places and help you understand what is actually true and not what you interpreted to be true. He can help you see how to interpret that event biblically. And then I want you to do this. Write down God's truth and God's script that counters that unbiblical, unhealthy script in your life and begin to take captive those old scripts and act upon the biblical and healthy things that God says about you and your life and relationships and things around you. See, Satan has been trying to steal and kill and destroy you through false scripts. It actually helps to not just think about it, but to write down the false, untrue scripts in black and white. And then to rewrite the true script as it is anchored in the truth of what God says about you in the Bible. And take those thoughts captive. Take them prisoner. Lock them up and bring them to Jesus. When a thought comes to you that says, I'm not wanted, I'm not good enough, write the truth out. Worship team, come on back up. Write the truth out when those scripts of I'm not wanted, I'm not good enough come. And instead say, God will always pursue me. He will always want me. I can trust God's love and faithfulness. Why? Because 2 Timothy 2.13 says that even when I am faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. I am so much His that He could never disown me because I am His. Period. Every day, every minute, every second, I am His. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thank You so much that Your Spirit and Your Word and Your truth in Your Word give us the ability to take captive these thoughts and to demolish strongholds. Lord, I pray, I pray for Your Spirit to come right now and just give a sense of hope to all of us as we face these scripts because every single one of us has a script that's a stronghold still. It continues to trip us up. We've wanted to get past it. Many of us recognize the scripts that trip us up. Some of us, we don't recognize. So, Lord, for the ones that we don't recognize, would you point them out in your gracious manner, in your loving manner at the time you want us to deal with them? And, Lord, today we stand before you and say, would you, would you free us to love really well and to receive your love really well? Would you free each and every one of us so that each and every one of us can be the ones who put a stop to negative family things that have been passed down for generations in our family. That our kids and our grandkids will be healthier, better, stronger, more free than we are. And that we can, Lord, have the joy of being a part of that. So, Lord, we welcome your spirit with us right now. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.